Hi out there to all my listeners, and thank you for joining me for another episode of The Mark Guy Show. This is episode 16, and I've got three different topics to discuss today. So I'm going to, it'll be somewhat evenly distributed between the three. I think I'll start with the shortest, kind of progress from there. But the first piece of news I wanted to talk about, the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, who pretty infamously called Obama son of a whore a week ago, he today called for the withdrawal of U.S. military forces from the Philippines. And he said, quote, this is a translation, uh, these special forces, they have to go. I do not want to rift with America, but they have to go. Americans, they will really kill them. They will try to kidnap them to get ransom. So the story behind this is the U.S. has special forces currently in the Philippines to train troops to try to fight Islamist forces over there. Um, Troops were originally deployed to the Philippines in 2002 as part of the U.S.'s global worldwide uh, war on terror called Operation Enduring Freedom. And at its peak, about 1,200 Americans were in the Philippines. I'm not sure exactly how many are there now, but, you know, we've had a a somewhat, you know, a small presence, but a presence there for a period of time. And Duterte, he, he came out and he had this platform of, you know, basically being tough. I mean, that's probably the best way to describe it. So he came out and said, I'm going to be, I'm going to be tough on drugs tough on crime you know we're going to be a worldwide player uh i i don't know exactly who to compare him to in u.s politics but that's been kind of his he he's kind of braggadocious says what he thinks and he's already insulted the u.s a couple times if you count this as an insult Uh, the u.s has been critical of his war on drugs and crime which has been pretty tough uh you know substantial people have gone to prison and died uh but he has a very high approval rating in the Philippines. And I think the reasoning behind part of this derision between the Philippines and the United States is that it's, it's pretty hypocritical for us to be saying that to them when the U S in terms of the number of people behind bars and, you know, the number of human beings affected probably has the worst, you know, the worst war on drugs and war on crime in the entire world. You know, we have the, the most people imprisoned, in this country, in the entire world. Um, so I think it's pretty hypocritical for us to try to be critical of them. But then beyond that, what I'm thinking is him saying this, it really confirms what a lot of anti-interventionists have been saying all along. And we have plenty of evidence to back this up. This is just another piece to the puzzle. But that uh, Americans being over there, they become a target. You know, we become a target being elsewhere. And especially being from one of the richest countries in the world, if not the richest country in the world, you become a target for kidnapping to, you know, to be symbolic. You know, I'm using this Islamist group in the Philippines as an example, but killing a few Americans or kidnapping a few Americans, it shows all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're a legit power now. You know, we, we're strong by being able to take out the Americans. It becomes very symbolic. And it also is... It also can be very rewarding financially to kidnap to kidnap Americans and to to extract some payments in order to um, in order to to free those hostages or free those those who were kidnapped. So all that I really have to say in response to these types of stories is 
what the hell are we doing in the Philippines? Why are we there? Like I've said in past episodes, we do far more harm in most of these cases by picking a side, even if that side ends up winning and we think that side's the lesser of two evils or if even that side's good, oftentimes that side ends up being evil and that side ends up being worse than those that were taken out by that side that we armed and trained. And it's costly. I mean, that shouldn't be lost in all this discussion. Why are U.S. taxpayers funding military people to be over getting involved in a conflict in the Philippines? Why are we putting our young people at risk going over there where they're targets for these Islamist groups? And Americans, in our presence there, we can become a symbol of oppression. You know, even if it's not the U.S. that's actually doing the oppressing, which in a lot of cases we are. You know, by going there, we've made things worse. But just Americans being there now, it can become a symbol that these groups rally around. And they rally behind a leader that's willing to be strong against that symbol. So we really need to rethink our entire foreign policy. And when we're at a point where we are broke we don't have the money to spend. It's not like there's all this excess money in the coffers that we can just throw away in these military you know, adventures around the world where it doesn't really affect the United States whatsoever. It, it's just ridiculous. And I wish that these stories, that was the angle that we came at more. I mean, a lot of people will, will read something like this and think, oh, Okay, you know, maybe maybe we should take those people out because we don't want them to be targets. But they don't think about, why are we in the Philippines in the first place? Why did we have 1,200 Americans in the Philippines, you know, affiliated with the military in, in the Philippines at its peak? Why? What is that doing for us here at home? How is that helping us protect the mainland? And it's not. And so that we have a presence all around the world. And it's just very frustrating to, to watch and watch us continue to blow all this money, continue to sacrifice American lives, and continue to make Americans worldwide. And it's not just Americans in the military, but now Americans that are just, you know, journalists or just people, people who are going on tourism trips to other countries become targets because of our presence all around the world. And that's what Duterte is saying here. And I think he's right. I think we need to get out of there. We need to let them figure out their own affairs we need to let them fight the islamists themselves and if it becomes a a broader conflict where it, it could affect the united states then maybe we can get involved but really ultimately that conflict if any other countries do get involved at all it should be the countries in that region that actually possibly have a vested interest in the philippines going one way or the other where the united states it doesn't really affect us i'm not trying to say that callously but it's, it would be one thing if when we get involved in these kinds of conflicts, we pick the winner, the winner is always the right person or the right group, and it always ends up happily ever after. If that was our history in foreign policy, maybe I would be more interventionist. Maybe. I still don't think it makes sense morally. Um, but if we'd always had good outcomes from doing these types of things, then that maybe would be one thing. You could at least make a good argument. But we have not had good outcomes we have continually embroiled ourselves in these long conflicts where there's there ends up not being a clear winner. We end up sacrificing a lot of money, a lot of lives, and we make enemies that we otherwise wouldn't have had. So 
we need to think long and hard about being in these types of situations and being involved. And hopefully we do take Duterte's advice and leave the country. That would be a step in the right direction at the very least. So another thing I wanted to discuss is more Fed news. So I always enjoy talking about this. It's always a good time. Um, and it's, it's pretty hilarious how predictable the Fed has become. And they're almost beyond parody now. They're almost beyond making fun of because it's too easy. You know, it's, it's so easy to predict what they're going to do. And it's easy to make fun of them for that because you can predict it days ahead. You can say based on what's happening now, yeah, this is what they're going to do next week. That's where they are at this point. So the big news that came out today, there, there were a couple other speeches, but the one that I, uh, that I think was the biggest news and that the markets reacted to the most was uh, uh, Fed Board of Governors member uh, Lyle Brainerd spoke about the economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and she sent a very dovish signal. So she's typically been one of the more dovish members of the Board of Governors, and people weren't really sure what to expect when she was going to speak. You know, is she, are they putting her out there so that she can give a hawkish signal? And people would think, oh, because, you know, she's typically been very dovish or on the dovish end of the spectrum. Now that she's sending a hawkish message, that means they must be raising rates in September. That did not happen. So she came out, she sent this dovish signal, and I here are some quotes, and it's almost play-by-play what I talked about in my previous Fed-related episode, which I'll make sure to put in the um, suggested readings, reference articles tab so you can hear what I said previously. It was only a couple episodes ago. Uh, so, quote, in particular, to the extent that the effect on inflation of further gradual tightening in labor market conditions is likely to be moderate and gradual, the case to tighten policy preemptively is less compelling. The asymmetry in the conventional policy toolkit would lead me to expect policy to be tilted somewhat in favor of guarding against downside risks relative to preemptively raising rates to guard against upside risks. So she's basically trying to toe the same line that I was talking about in the previous episode where they're trying to say, yeah, there's been progress and things are getting better, but they're not quite at the point where we need them to be in order to raise rates. And I don't know how long you can expect to have, how, how long can you expect that message to, to get across? How long can you expect people to buy that, yes, the economy is okay, is in good shape, and it's gotten better since we talked previously, but it's still not quite good enough to come off of a Fed funds rate target of 25 to 50 basis points, a historically low Fed funds target. So I don't know how how long they expect people to continue to, to buy into this. And I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that this is just ridiculous. And whatever they say, you can't trust at this point. Like I said, they're beyond parity, and it's so predictable. So another part of her speech, which I thought was important, was she blamed China. And I said exactly in, in my previous episode, I said that they'll probably find a way to blame something happening something happening around the world as well. These are the two excuses that they've always fallen back on. Even when there's not maybe something clear to be able to point to, this is their this is always in their in their back pocket. Oh yeah, you know, global uncertainty and things have gotten better, but they're not quite where we need them to be to raise rates domestically. That's what they always say. So she said, quote, 
Most importantly, China is undergoing a challenging transition from a growth model based on investment, exports, and debt-fueled state-owned enterprises to one driven by consumption, services, and dynamic private businesses. The importance of Chinese growth and stability to many emerging market economies and to global markets more broadly implies that these risks have global implications. Well, these risks, those are never going anywhere. Those aren't going anywhere in the near future. I mean, China's going to be going through this transition for the next five, ten years probably, if not longer. So if this is an excuse to not raise rates at the September 2016 meeting, this, this can be an excuse used in all the 2017 meetings, and all the 2018 meetings. I mean, the fact that this is new news, that China is new news, and that's something that, oh, you know, drats. All of a sudden, China's going through this transition. That's, I mean, that's what they, that's what they want to make you think. That, that you know, th- this is going to keep them from raising rates at this meeting. But, oh, yeah, we, we're still probably going to raise them at the December meeting. You should still expect us to raise them at the December meeting. That excuse is not going anywhere. China is not changing from September to December. So I thought that was ridiculous, but it played right into the playbook that I discussed in the previous podcast that I have linked below. It's just impossible that things can keep getting better, that they keep saying things are going to get better, or that they're getting better, and for it not to be good enough to raise rates. At a certain point, when you talk that tune for two years or however long they've been, I mean, maybe even longer than that, definitely since the beginning of 2015, they've been singing this exact tune and the playbook's been the same over the whole time. They have one measly 25 basis point rate rate hike. You can't keep saying that and have it be true. It's impossible because if things really were getting progressively better, they would be at a point now where they could easily raise rates and they could raise rates a lot more than 25 basis points further. So this is a story to watch. Uh, There should be no expectation that they're going to raise at the September meeting and the probabilities went down with everything that happened today. Um, Another important thing to, to say with them is look at what they came out and did as a concerted effort on Monday after having such a poor day in the markets on Friday. And people want to try to say that the Fed isn't reacting to the stock market. And that cannot be any further from the truth. They see, they come out, they, they try to give some hawkish signals to see what happens. The market tanks. And so what do they do on Monday? Three of them come out and give dovish signals. And the market pops right back up. So all that they're trying to do right now is keep this bubble propped up. Keep it propped up at least through November and get Hillary Clinton into office and then see what happens from there. And it's going to be it's going to be rough no matter what happens. You know, no matter when they raise rates or if they wait indefinitely to raise rates until they're absolutely forced to, it's going to be ugly no matter what they do. So it'll be interesting to follow. You know, I I would be laughing at this if it wasn't you know, if it wasn't my country's monetary policy at stake and if it wasn't such a big deal. I would just think this is hilarious. And that's kind of what I've done now is just been watching it, kind of laughing. And you can just, you just know what's coming before it even happens. And and they've just been continually wrong. They've backed themselves into a corner. And it's going to be pretty fun to watch them squirm in that corner. Because it's their own fault. It's their own fault for playing this political game and for letting rates be this low for this long. You know, and there's blood on Bernanke's hands. 
there's blood on Yellen's hands, though less on hers because Bernanke was the one that started all this. I mean, it goes back to Alan Greenspan, too. You know, he was the one that, that created the original bubble economy that then Bernanke was trying to prop up coming out of the Great Recession, and Yellen has continued to do since. So, I mean, all of them are to blame. But it's going to be fun to watch them squirm, and it's going to be fun to see more and more people criticize Janet Yellen in the mainstream. I think right now it's still somewhat relegated to the financial world where people are criticizing her, and I still don't think enough people in the financial world are criticizing her. But now you see Donald Trump coming out, and he came out and blasted the Fed again. And I did a whole that whole episode, I, th- I believe it was episode 13, on Trump's comments about the Fed and what I thought about the Fed and their, their recent actions. And he came out again and said very similar things, that they're doing a political job and getting this issue out into the mainstream and making it something that, that people are actually going to talk about that may actually be a real issue in this election, which is pretty rare. I mean, usually Fed policy isn't brought up. Usually people don't recognize that Fed policy is central to what's going on going into an election season, or they don't realize how important monetary policy is. So props to him, you know, though I disagree with him on on a whole lot of things, props to him for bringing it up and for making it an issue because it needs to be. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Really, everything that's going on with the Fed, though, is playing into Donald Trump's hands because I don't know if they're going to be able to keep all these balls in the air through November, if they're going to be able to keep the markets propped up until November. And if, if anything happens before November, that's a clear positive for Donald Trump. But what's really playing into Trump's hands, and this is the final thing that I wanted to talk about, is the whole Hillary health scare. So I'm sure everybody's heard about it by now, but Hillary basically collapsed as she was walking toward a van she was feeling sick. They were leading her away, taking her back to uh, her daughter Chelsea's apartment, which is in New York. So she was at she was at the 9/11 memorial for about 90 minutes before being whisked away. And the official excuse was that she overheated and needed to you know sit in the air conditioning or whatever for a little while to recover before coming back out. But a video comes out later on that shows her stumbling multiple times trying to get into this van. And she has her secret security, or, uh, she has her security staff all around her. And her handler, who's always with her and seems to like be providing medical care for her as well as being a, a bodyguard type. He, he was there and they were all leading her into this car. But you can see clearly in this video that she stumbled pretty badly and it looked like her head was bobbing like she was having another uh, seizure type event so when that came out later and that was spreading all over twitter basically the hillary the hillary camp had to recant what they had said earlier and they they had to give an excuse for this video because this video was out there and the reason why this is important like i've said before i don't really have a dog in this race i think Trump and Clinton both have huge warts and I don't feel comfortable with either of them being president and I don't think ultimately it's going to affect my life either way. But the reason why I wanted to discuss this is because it fits in with the the general theme of this show talking about decentralization and how the media elites are losing their power and how they're freaking out about it. So this Hillary Health stuff, this isn't the first 
this obviously is not the first uh, first bit of news to come out regarding Hillary's health. And some independent journalism, journalists have been covering this for weeks. Infowars was huge on it. Drudge Report also reported quite a bit on this. Um, Mike Cernovich was big on this. But you're seeing this election more so than any time in in my lifetime, and I'm sure any time before that, the you know the big media companies were able to control the message far easier before then. You know, before the internet came out, I can't imagine it ever have been ever have being easier for them to control the message. Um, so, all these people have been talking about Hillary's health and have been making this a central issue. And up until less than a week ago. They've been castigated as conspiracy theorists, you know, don't trust them. They're just trying to get views and, you know, it's, it's all clickbait. That's what the mainstream media was saying the whole time. But then this Hillary thing happened and they were all vindicated. And now this, everybody had to backtrack in the mainstream media. And now all of a sudden this is a central story of this presidential election season. And it was started by Infowars and by, you know, Mike Cernovich and Matt Drudge, you know, all these people that are running these small operations versus these huge, colossal media companies that have been around forever. And that's that's the way of the future. This isn't going to be turned around. There's no way to gain back control. The cat's out of the bag. This is going to continue to happen. The media of the future is going to be this decentralized type of operation where nobody has a big market share, where you have everybody out, you know, trying to use their cell phones, trying to do whatever they can, uh, citizen journalists trying to get the story and things being spread on Twitter. And that's the way of the future. It's not having these media elites that the vast majority of the United States can't relate to. You know, somebody like a Rachel Maddow who came out and she blasted Infowars in an entire segment on her show just days ago, right before the weekend. And now I don't know what she has said in response to this, but she looks horrible after this. But people now are going to trust those independent journalists, even though in a lot of cases, yes, what they're putting out is clickbait. They can't verify everything. They don't have those types of sources. But people are now going to be flocking to those types of sources because they at least know they're not driven by an agenda necessarily. They're not driven by the same agenda that the mainstream media is. I mean, everybody's kind of driven by an agenda. And a lot of these places have their candidate that they're backing. Uh, But who is going to trust the mainstream media after seeing them really being complicit and trying to cover up what happened with Hillary because, I mean, the mainstream media should have known when they whisked Hillary away and none of the normal none of the reporters that normally follow her around, which are from all the major networks, were able to go. They had to know something was wrong. That should have been reported on. Yeah, maybe they didn't know exactly what happened. Maybe they didn't necessarily see her stumble or, you know, get a video of her stumbling. That's very possible. But they should have known something was up. That should have been reported on. So, yeah, maybe they wouldn't have had the whole story, but they would have at least had, you know, an indication that something was wrong. But this is the way of the future. And I I think ultimately it's a good thing. 
I like it. I think there is much more of a possibility for untruths to be out there, for lies to be told, and for, I guess, I don't want to say for propaganda to be spread, because I think it's much easier when the mainstream media controlled everything for there to be a concerted propaganda effort where they all kind of work together to get the same message out. I think it, that was much easier. Propaganda, I more think of, you know, large-scale operations and trying to get a single message out there rather than, you know, what might happen with these smaller sources is they're going to have some biases. They're going to have they're going to have the side that they favor. That's not really propaganda necessarily though because it's not, you know, it it's not they're not in bed with with the political elites like the media elites have been. So that's going to be very interesting to watch. And it's crazy, this campaign, if you look at who's influencing this election and who's having huge influences on this election, you look at a network like InfoWars, which is an internet-based operation. And, you know, Alex Jones has been castigated as a loony conspiracy theorist forever but they're influencing this campaign you have all these alt-right meme trolls that have huge followings on twitter and are influencing this election coming off of reddit you know this decentralized group that's just become a force mike cernovich is you know another example of that and you have someone like milo yiannopoulos who's also influenced this election you know a single gay guy from Breitbart so I think it's I think it's fun to watch and I think it is a good trend overall I think we will get more truth overall at least more information overall than we've historically gotten from the mainstream media I don't know if necessarily you know I don't agree with a lot of the ideological bents that these groups go on but I think that it, if you know how to go out and pick your sources. So if you know how to get a pretty wide array of these independent journalists on both sides, you're able to get much more information than you were able to before by just listening to CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and, you know, maybe some CBS and ABC. I think you're able to get a much a much clearer picture of what's going on in that in this current environment versus what it used to be like. And it's fun to watch I mean it's fun to watch those media elites who have kind of been high on their horse for so long squirm and realize you know what maybe we don't have anywhere near as much control or power as we did before maybe we don't really matter much anymore i think that's kind of fun to watch and it'll be fun to see what the ultimate end game is obviously this is always going to be developing and transitioning nothing's ever static but it's going to be interesting to see what things are like five years down the line if this trend really does continue, which I really can't see it being slowed up. I don't know if there is a way to slow it up. So I wanted to discuss that too because it fit in with my idea of the elites losing power and the establishment losing power and more power being given back or you know being switched over to the common person and to common people because now with little to no resources, you can get a message out there that can reach tons of people. Whereas before, money played a much larger role in who you could reach and really the message you could get to those people. So this election, never a dull moment. Um, it's been fun to watch. I don't like either of the candidates, like I've said. 
but at the least if you if you don't think it's going to affect you either way you can kind of distance yourself and just laugh at it all and i think that's where i am at this point obviously i don't wish harm on on hillary but i do think that her lying is catching up to her and it's clear that she and her campaign lied and that she's hid things about her health so i'm interested to see whether or not we learn what she actually has and what her health issues actually are because it's it there have been a lot of weird occurrences and i will post a video i know it's um kind of in the conspiracy theory realm but a video where a doctor is trying to connect the dots and say that hillary clinton has parkinson's but i'm going to include that in the suggested reading uh referenced articles page just as something to be able to give you the full scope of what people are saying you know both on the fringes and more in the mainstream but if you watch the video it's really not out of the realm of possibility and it could make sense it's very possible but you know just looking at pictures and video evidence is very hard to to make any sort of diagnosis any sort of health diagnosis so i appreciate you listening i'm sure there's gonna be plenty more news to come out probably more updates on the hillary health stuff uh, like i said i don't know how important of a topic that is to me overall it's more about the the, the media trends that it represents or that it's showing but it'll be fun. So thank you for listening. You can subscribe, iTunes, tuned in or tune in, and Stitcher. Um, we should be at any just about any podcast aggregator. And uh, I look forward to talking to everybody soon. So have a great night.